If I told you about a new restaurant that I had just recently visited and I said, it is such a great restaurant, what would you think that I meant by that? Well, it's pretty obvious, right? If I told you that is such a great restaurant, then you would imagine that, of course, the food is just fabulous. Probably the service just incredibly good and perhaps a, a really wonderful atmosphere. In fact, if I told you, man, it is such a great restaurant, you'd probably be anxious to visit that. Next time you had a chance to go out to eat, you might say, I want to go there. And so you go there and... It's not anything at all like what you imagine. The food is pretty bland. In fact, it's not even very good at all. The, 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 the waiter or waitress that you had was rude and didn't care for you uh, while you were there. And, and in fact, the atmosphere of the restaurant was pretty stinky. And you said, what was he talking about anyway? He said this was such a great restaurant. On what basis is he making that statement? You'd really wonder about my recommendation, wouldn't you, if it didn't bear out? if it wasn't like what I described. All right, so something great. If you're going to describe something as great, then obviously it needs to have the qualities and characteristics that would make it so, right? All right, now in the reading that Arthur read for us just a few moments ago, I want you to notice something described as great. Hebrews 2, beginning verse 1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Notice that in the midst of this passage is the expression, so great salvation. Now, Based upon the illustration that we offered about a restaurant, think about this, salvation, obviously a subject far more important. What makes this salvation so great? This terminology, as we were just saying, certainly demands some sort of outstanding characteristics or qualities. What are those qualities of our salvation that makes it so great? For a few moments this morning, our study is about this great salvation that God has made available to us through his son, Jesus Christ. It's described as a great salvation. I believe that we can illustrate that it really is and that it fits the bill, that it's a true description. We'll talk about the great salvation in our lesson this morning. Thanks for being here. We have a perfect first day of the week weather-wise. We have a great opportunity to gather together with others of like precious faith. We have an almighty creator to worship and glorify by what we do. Everything's just right. We couldn't want it better. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being a part of this. We appreciate you very much. We certainly welcome our visitors. We hope to come back every time you have a chance and that you'll ask any questions that come to mind as you observe our worship, as you join together with us in what we're doing here today. Please ask any questions that you have. Let's talk about this great salvation. First of all, if, a salvation, if the salvation that God affords to us is going to be great, then it necessarily needs to have the power to do certain things. For instance, this great salvation should have the power to transform us now in this lifetime. I think that a lot of people, maybe the majority of people, think that religion really is only about what you get after you die. Uh, the benefits of religion are 
in the afterlife. It's not now. Uh, and I really believe that that is the reason why lots of people don't do anything religiously, because they, they can't muster up the willpower or the determination. They just simply can't be motivated to seek something that's far off in the future. They can't give up their, their present gratification for some future benefit, and so they just don't do anything at all. But I've got to tell you, that's really a wrong view of religion and serving God. It's not just about what's out there in the afterlife. It's about this life as well. The salvation that God offers us through Jesus Christ is a life-transforming sort of thing. It changes us from the self-destructive kind of behavior that's so typical of men of this world and puts us on the right course to live as we should. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, it says, There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And so when man does what he thinks, what he wants, what he desires, when he lives after his own will, notice the ends of that are the ways of death. There's no benefit to it. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself, it is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Look at the lives of men who are not guided by God. You know them. You probably have personal acquaintances with people who are simply not interested at all in God or doing the things of God. Obviously, in this world, and even in our own immediate community, there are plenty of people who are not being guided by God, not trying to follow His word and will. What's the result of that? Wouldn't you agree that their lives lack purpose, and meaning, and of course, uh, they get themselves into all kinds of hurtful and ruinous situations because they're not, they're not transformed beings. They're not living as God would have them to live. The news, of course, recently has been all full uh, with details and information about the death of the singer Whitney Houston. And here's, here's just another in a long line of classic celebrity examples of people who did not live for God and their lives had never been transformed and they were living in the ruinous kind of lifestyle uh, that results in things like the story of Whitney Houston. Here's a, here's a woman with great talent and opportunity and her life was just a wreck and a disaster. That's what happens when men try to live according to their own will, pursue things that have no value. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, it says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The people who are not living for God simply don't realize, haven't taken the time to recognize that the things they're pursuing are just all temporal. Notice, the world passes away. And so if we make that our objective, if that's what we're living for, if we've never seen anything better or more meaningful, then the result is you end up striving for things that are just passing away. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There's the word that we've been talking about, to be transformed. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Well, how are our minds renewed and how are we transformed? Of course, that comes by understanding what God has revealed in the Scriptures. And we have a fundamental change in the way that we think and act. We're transformed. Notice this word true. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I don't think that we probably would make this statement in the same fashion as the King James translation does here. The word prove, according to Strong's, means to test by implication to approve, examine, or prove, to try something. And so what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, is try this out. See for yourself that living this way, examine this, prove it, test it, and you'll realize that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, it works. Living this way is beneficial and meaningful and helpful. This is the right and best way to live. It changes you from the meaningless and destructive life of the non-religious person to the kind of person who knows why and how he ought to be living in this present world. And so a great salvation needs to be such that it has the ability to transform us in this life. And I believe clearly that the salvation that God offers has that capacity. It's great because of that. This great salvation should also have the power to enrich our current lives. Um, you ever heard heaven referred to as pie in the sky? I think that's what a lot of people think. Heaven is pie in the sky. Again, it's the idea, it's after a while. When this life is over, I might get that pie in the sky. I might get to go to heaven. It, the idea is if I suffer and deprive myself here and now, I'll finally, maybe, get some reward after this life is over. What about that? Well, yes, certainly heaven is a great reward for the righteous after this life is over. There's no doubt about that. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But again, I believe this is an inadequate view of God's plan for us. That God actually wants our lives to be enriched now and heaven later. That living for God makes everything better right now. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Bodily exercise profitable little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promised the life that now is and of that which is to come. We've referenced this verse plenty of times before, and we pointed out that it says bodily exercise profitable little. It doesn't say there's no benefit to bodily exercise. There's a little. But godliness is profitable unto all things, having the promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. Well, notice, it talks about the life which is to come. There's no doubt about that. But I want to emphasize to you that godliness has promise of the life that now is. That there's a great benefit that comes from living a godly life right now. I would add to that the familiar statement that Moses made in Deuteronomy 6, verse 24. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. What are the laws of God for? What have they always been for? We don't live under that Old Testament law of Moses any longer. We live under the New Testament law of Jesus Christ. But in general, what's the law of God for? For our good. He gives us these instructions to make our lives better. For instance, we might ask an example. 
Why does God have such a strict marriage law? What's the reason for that anyway? Why, why doesn't God just let us have as many and as different and varied marriage partners as we want? Uh, I have a wife for a while. And I get tired of that wife, I go get me a different wife. I get tired of that, I go get me another one. Maybe have several in the course of a lifetime because, after all, I should be able to do what I want to about marriage. Why is God so restrictive anyway about this marriage thing? Why does he tell us in Matthew 19, verse 6, what God has joined together, let not man put us under? Why, why is he so hard on us about this marriage thing? Well, because he knows what's in our best interest. I want to ask you a question from your own personal experience of the people you know who've had the really happiest and most meaningful lives, the most fulfilled lives, the people that you can look up to and admire for the, for the kind of situations they've had in their families, for instance. Who are they? Who are those people who've had the happiest and most fulfilled lives? Would you agree with me that they're the people who've honored God's marriage law? That, that living that way has been very beneficial to them? that they've been able to avoid all the heartache that others have suffered when, they, when that marriage law was not honored by one or both of the marriage partners? Wouldn't you agree that that's true? Wouldn't that stand as just one example, and we could cite many, many more, of the fact that when God put a law in place, He didn't do it just for sake of being mean and trying to test us. God, God isn't like that. God loves us. He wants what's in our best interest. And so when He established His laws and rules for us to live by, he did it, as Moses said here in Deuteronomy 6, verse 24, for our good. And so we are uh, enriched here and now. Our lives are better in the present moment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Notice, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. There's the terminology that we are using here, and that's the point we're trying to make. We're enriched by what God has made available to us in regards to our salvation in Christ Jesus. So, again, get the idea that we're talking about in our lesson here. If this is such a great salvation, and that's, that's what Hebrews 2 says, it's a great salvation. If it's so great, what's so great about it? Well, it's great because it changes us, fundamentally transforms our thinking and our actions and makes our lives better right now. We're not just waiting for heaven. We're made better now, and our lives are enriched presently. If this is a great salvation, and it clearly is, then it should bring satisfying peace to all situations. I don't know about you, but I have wondered very often how people with God, without God, people who do not know God, I have wondered how do they cope with the inevitable trials and issues of life. For instance, and a single example will suffice, how, do, how, do a, how does a person without a relationship with God, how do they deal with the loss of a loved one? How do you deal with the loss of a family member? How do you deal with the loss of a beloved husband or wife? That sort of thing. Uh, how do you deal with that? I want to tell you, for those of us who do know God, there's a comfort and peace that carries us through such times as that. How do those who don't have that relationship with God, how do they deal with that? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. But I'm certainly grateful for the fact that God, through the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus, makes us such that can have peace in all situations. 
In Philippians chapter 4, beginning verse 4, the familiar text says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Notice that last part of the, of the passage. The peace of God that passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I think what Paul is saying there, that this peace of God is the kind of thing that's effectively indescribable to those who don't know it, and those who've never experienced it, passeth understanding. In other words, you, you have to experience it to really know what it's talking about there. It's a peace of God that passes all understanding, and it's going to keep you, it says. Now, what's the basis of that sort of hope and that sort of peace that Paul is describing in that text? Well, the Lord is at hand. And because the Lord is at hand, then we can have this peace of God. When he says the Lord is at hand, he's not saying there that his second coming is near. The Lord is at hand. In other words, he's coming back again real soon. Paul wasn't saying that. Paul knew that you can't predict that. If he was predicting that, look how wrong he was. It's been almost 2,000 years and it hadn't happened yet. That's not what he's talking about there when he says the Lord is at hand. Rather, he's meaning that the Lord is near, that he's aware of our situation. He knows what's going on with us. The Lord is at hand. He's near. And so, you can have this peace of God that passeth all understanding. The Lord is near to us. Isn't that a wonderful thing to contemplate and think about? Have you ever had, maybe by way of parallel we could suggest this, have you ever had a friend so close and so near to you that when you got into a difficult situation, you would just call? Not that you believe that there maybe was even anything uh, specific that they could do in the matter, but you, it just was a comfort to you to know that they knew. And so you just called them. And it was, such a, it was such a wonderful thing just to be able to express to them the concern that you had, the trouble you were dealing with. You ever had a friend like that? If you've had a friend like that, you've been well blessed. It's a wonderful thing for us to have friends like that. And that just touches the hem of the garment in terms of the relationship that we can have with the Lord. He's near. He cares about us. And because he does, then we can have this peace of God which passes all understanding. In Hebrews chapter 13, beginning verse 20, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus make you perfect in every good work to, to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice, it talks about the peace of God. But do you see the link? That's the God who, by the way, brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. And the idea is that if, if he could raise Jesus from the dead, and of course he did, then he can make everything okay for us too. Trust him and be at peace. That's what the passage is saying. Be at peace. We've got a God like this. We've got a God who could raise Jesus from the dead. Be at peace. Again, the great salvation should bring such peace regardless of your situation, and this salvation in Jesus does that. Finally, let me suggest to you, so great a salvation should be able to change our mortal bodies into immortal beings who will live eternally with God. We've been, we've been postponing this part of the discussion. We've been suggesting that those who look only to the afterlife to see the benefits uh, of serving God, 
are, are missing out on a lot. They're not seeing the whole picture. Uh, but having said that, then we also got to say there is certainly uh, the benefit of heaven. You know, the, the idea of only looking to heaven and not enjoying the benefits that we've already mentioned concerning our salvation, that's sort of like sitting down to a fabulous meal, maybe a great steak dinner, and you don't even pay attention to the steak dinner because you're so interested in getting to the dessert. Well, the dessert's great, but man, take a minute to enjoy the dinner too. That's what we've been talking about here. Take a minute to appreciate all that we currently have concerning our salvation. But there is dessert, and the dessert is we get to go to heaven, be with God eternally. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read about that, tra- that changing, that transforming our bodies into an immortal being. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this moral must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall put, have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We could spend several minutes talking about this wonderful passage and talking about the hope that we have. Isn't it a, a, a really amazingly great thing to consider that there's a time in the future at the last trump, as he describes here in this passage, when we're going to be changed and be able to inherit that home forever in heaven with the Lord. What, what a great thing to, to think about. But I think it's interesting that in this passage that talks about that change, our mortal bodies being changed into immortal ones to dwell with ever, forever with God in heaven. The, the last of that passage is important too. He says, therefore, since that is the, the, the reality for those who serve the Lord. In other words, since we have that to look forward to, he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain, in the Lord. Uh, don't let anything, because of what we have to look forward to in heaven, don't let anything move you away from Him. Don't let anything keep you from doing His will. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning verse 16, it says, The Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And those certainly are great words of comfort. And so this great salvation certainly gives us that hope of eternity in heaven. We can live forever with God there. Somebody says something's great. You expect them to be able to, to explain what makes it great. We use the illustration at the start of a restaurant, maybe describing a restaurant as a great restaurant. Well, there's got to be something that makes it deserve that, that uh, description, right? Same with this salvation. Hebrews 2 says that we have a great salvation, so great salvation, it says. What's so great about it? Well, I hope that you appreciate uh, the things that the Scripture tells us that makes this a great salvation. changes us fundamentally in the way we think, enriches our lives here and now, 
makes us capable of enjoying peace in all kinds of troubling circumstances and ultimately gives us that hope of heaven in eternity. As we're about to sing a song of invitation, we ask you if you have availed yourself of that great salvation in Christ Jesus. Now, in asking that question, basically what we're asking is, have you obeyed the gospel plan of salvation? Based upon faith, that the things that are described in the Word of God are true, have you acted? Have you repented of your sin, confessed your faith in Jesus, and been baptized for the remission of sins? If not, then you may need to make that decision without delay. So, you, if, if you're not a Christian yet, you, have, you haven't had access to that great salvation we've been describing this morning. We hope you'll make that decision without delay. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away, then you've been neglecting that salvation. You've not been continuing in the things of God, and you've put yourself in jeopardy. If you're a Christian, but you've not been faithful, Lord, we beg you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing.